forgot to turn the mic on. It's great to see you all. It's great to be here in church. And I really, really like to see so many people here. And, and those of you who are at home uh, that, that have not yet come back to, to join us, I, I really, really want to invite you to come back uh, to actually attend here in this uh, magnificent building. Uh, and as much as I enjoy coming here and seeing you all, I have to say, uh, one of the times that I feel most awkward is at the time of coffee. You, you might say, well, why, why in a church service would I feel awkward when we have coffee? Well, uh, there are some of us who are introverted. Introverts. We're people, and I suspect that there's a lot of introverts here in this congregation. And the reason for that is we have a lot of academic people here. Researchers, academics, and they tend to be introverts. And you know how the routine goes. We, we go there for coffee, and you, meet some, you see somebody new and... Uh, uh, there's questions that you use to kind of break the ice, so to speak. Uh, what's your name? Uh, uh, what do you do for a living? Uh, what brings you here to Delft? And those are easy questions to ask and easy questions to answer usually. But it doesn't seem to get down deep into something more, who you really are. I can give you my name, I can tell you why I'm here in Delft, and I can do, tell you what I do for a living. But do you really get down deep into who I am? And I think maybe some of you feel that uh, sometimes as well. And in the, for the news uh, uh, letter uh, this last week, I posed those questions. They were not actually my questions. They were the questions that were, were posed uh, by a fellow named Jonathan Sachs. And perhaps some people here have heard me talk about Jonathan Sachs before. He was the uh, chief rabbi of the British Commonwealth. And he was a, a deeply, deeply scholarly man, extraordinarily intelligent, but he had a way of using scripture to really apply it to today, to life today. And uh, I was sorry to hear almost a year ago to the day that, uh, that he had passed away from cancer. Uh, and the, the world is a, uh, will miss him. Because he was, he was really an extraordinary man. And I love reading what he has to say. And he said there are the great questions. Who are you? Why are we here? And what is our task? In other words, what is our name in a sense? Uh, why are we here? What are we doing here? And what do we do? What is our task? But I would add... A fourth question to what he posed there. What is the deepest longings of your heart? What are the deep what what is it that really makes you tick? 
That's the way we would say it in American English. What makes you tick as a human being? But Jonathan Sachs had great insight uh, into this. And he talked about he talked about a society coming together from diverse groups of people, and that's what we are here in this international church. We all come from different places with different stories, with different background. And he says, how do you create unity out of that diversity? And he said, the secret to that is covenant. Covenant. The agreement that comes together. And when I heard him say this, or read him saying this, I go, wow, here he is, this chief rabbi of, of Great Britain, and he's talking about covenant, and he's talking about covenant society. And in the case that I saw, he was talking about American society, and that really rang a bell with me. Yeah, it rang a bell. And he said, he said at the heart, he said, he said story or narrative is at the heart of covenantal society, a society where people from different groups, from different backgrounds can come together into unity. He says, a covenantal story, a covenantal narrative is always inclusive. Always inclusive. He says, he says it's, it's the property of all of its participants Newcomers as well as those who are native-born. It says to everyone, regardless of class or creed, he says, this is who we are. It creates a sense of common identity that transcends all other identities. Well, this, this doesn't mean that, that, that when, we, when we subscribe to a covenant and a covenant story that our personal story uh, or our family story or our national story uh, goes away. It's still there. But, it, it, but our covenantal story transcends that. Stories, he says, create memory and memory creates identity. That is why covenant and, and, and narrative story are at the heart of community consciously created out of diversity. And that's what we are here in ICF Delft. That's what, that's what we're trying to do here. And, and, so, and so when I realized that, I realized that for Jonathan Sachs, a, a, an observant Jew, the story of Abraham, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was his story. But I also realized, it dawned on me, yes, when I came to Christ, when I got grafted into that story, it became my story as well. And that story resonated in his life, and it begins and began to resonate in my life as well. Now, resonate. <laughs> Some of you are engineers. And you know probably a whole lot more about resonance uh, than I do from a scientific standpoint. What I mean by resonance, and I looked it up to get a good uh, dictionary definition of resonance in this sense, it is to have special...
special meaning or importance in something that uh, is because it relates to our own experience. Let me say that again. To have special meaning or importance in something because it relates to your own experience. It suggests intensification. It it suggests prolongation. It goes on and it goes on. And I talked about ringing a bell. Ringing a bell. But a 10-minute walk from here is the old church. You know the one with the leaning tower. Okay? At the top of that tower is the largest bell in the Netherlands. Nine, almost 9,000 kilo. Can you imagine? But that bell is, is it, it rings every hour on the hour, but it's only the clapper that hits the bell. They don't dare to swing to toll the bell because of the tower leaning and because of the ground underneath, and they do not want to disturb the foundations of that church. But there's one exception. One exception. And that is when they have a royal funeral. You know, those of you who are new here to Delft, you, you realize that back there is the royal crypt where the members of the royal family are buried. And when the royal funeral procession leaves the Hague, and slowly begins to come to Delft in order to conduct the funeral service here in the new church, the bell in the old church begins to chime. It goes back and forth. Bong. 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 It goes on and on and on until the funeral procession arrives here at the new church. And it, it, and it said, it said that, that people that live close by uh, to the church, uh, the teacups in the cupboard begin to shake and rattle. One old, test, uh, one old uh, resident of, of Delft uh, told me one time that when that happens, he says the ground begins to resonate. It goes on and on. And on. And so that's what I mean. That's what I mean about, about covenant stories, stories that go on and on and on and begin to resonate in, in your heart. And today we're going to be looking at a story from 3,000 years ago. And the question is does it resonate today for us? For us in, as individuals and for us as a community and for the, the church worldwide. Can that story from 3,000 years ago resonate for us today? Let me set the scene. It was the time that uh, we call it the judges. And it would be a very, very familiar type of time for, for us today. It was a time of idolatry, a time of immorality, corrupt leaders, strife, conflict, civil war, a time of lawlessness and injustice. The key phrase in 
the book of uh, Judges is everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It was a horrible time. But when I think about that and I think about the times that we are living through today, do, does that not resonate with you? Lawlessness? People doing what they want? Disregarding norms and, of behavior? In the time of the judges, uh, a, a Levite cut up a concubine and sent body parts throughout the country. Horrible things. But you know, if we are really honest, if we look at what's going on now, and when I say now, I'm talking about the last 120 years. Think about the times that, that we and our families have lived through. It, it makes the time of the judges almost seem like a, a Sunday school picnic by comparison. Horrible times. And can a person live a righteous life in a time of great, great wickedness? Well, I think so. And let's, let's look at this story from the beginning of the book of Samuel. I'm going to read the first eight verses. I'm going to call this the background. So listen. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn to it, please. It says, There was a certain man of Ramatayim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Yehoram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival, that is Penina, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So what went on year by year. And as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Oh boy, before I really get into the details here, into the passage, the, the issue here, the matter of tension and conflict in that family relates to childlessness. And I realize that, that for some, maybe some here or maybe some who are listening, uh, on, uh, on the internet, uh, this resonates all too 
uh, personally. I understand that. I know, I know that there's that deep, deep longing of the heart for men and women to have family. And, and childlessness, whether it be from inability to have children or from losing children, or maybe from not even finding a life partner, I, I, I realize that this resonates very, very deeply with people. And I don't want to make, I certainly don't want to make light of it. I don't want to ignore it. Uh, it's a very, very real issue that the church needs to be very sensitive about. There are, there are few words that one can say, maybe no words at all. Maybe it's almost impossible to express words that, that would be of comfort in, in those areas. But we can pray. Uh, if, if there's any that, that want prayer over this matter, uh, or prayer from someone who is listening in, uh, please contact us. We can offer prayer. We may not be able to offer a solution, but we can, we can offer up our prayers. So I want, I want us to, to keep that uh, in view. But at the same time, I want us to take a look at some of the details in the passage here as, as background. It's year by year. This, this wasn't just something that happened once. It happened time. After time. And it happened particularly, it was particularly difficult at the time when Elkanah went up to the house of the Lord for worship. And he did that year after year. It's an indication that this man and his family were observant people. They were, they were trying in their best way in times of great, great wickedness to be faithful to the, you know, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They could be righteous people in times of trouble. Oh, these weren't perfect people. I, won't, I don't want to say that Elkanah was a perfect man, but he was, he was a faithful man. And so year after year, he would go up and, and worship and offer sacrifice. And Yet there was this tension in the family. Penina could go up there with her children, you know, several of them. And Hannah would go up with no children. And notice it says twice that the Lord had closed her womb. Twice it says that. And you might wonder what's going on here. I can't explain it. The text doesn't say exactly all of the details about that. But we know that we know what the outcome of, of this story is. But the Lord had closed her womb. Reason was not immediately revealed. But what is revealing is character. It's revealing of character. Notice Penina's intense, intense uh, evil in a sense. What's going on? She, she provokes. She does it time after time. Notice the, the words. She, she, twice it says that she's provoking her. She grievously irritates Hannah 
as they are going to church, so to speak. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? And, and, it, and it shows the deep, deep pain of the soul that Hannah must have experienced. As often as Penina went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke Hannah. And, and if that wasn't enough, she goes up there and they sit down. They, they've made the offerings and they've sat down for the meal after the offerings. And can you imagine sitting down for the family meal? And, and, and it says that Elkanah loved Hannah. And, and that's a rare time in, in scripture where the, the heart of a person is revealed in such a way. It doesn't happen often. But, but I believe that Elkanah really, really loved Hannah. And so what does he do? He gives portions to all of his family members, but he gives a double portion to Hannah because he loved her. And she's sitting there at the dinner table, so to speak, and she's not eating. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that? And, 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 and so then what does Elkanah do? He asks her questions. And, and, and the way it's written here, he ha- they're asked one right after the other. Hannah, why do you weep? Why don't you eat? Why is your heart sad? And he knows why. He knows why. Because that fourth question really comes down. He says, am I not more to you than ten sons? He knew what the issue was. He knew full well. And I sense, I, I, can't, get, I can't get into his heart like the writer of the story. I can't get into his heart. But I sense maybe there was some irritation that he had there. You know, Hannah, I love you. I, 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 I'm showing it by giving you a double portion. And you're at the dinner table and, and you're nothing but frowns. And, you weren't, and you're not eating. Don't you, does it not affect me? Uh, you know, I, I realize as well, and this is kind of an aside. It's not the main reason for the uh, main point of the passage. But I realize that there are many times that I say things uh, to people that I love that might be kind of provoking in this sort of sense. And I confess that. And I suspect if, if we're all honest, there are times when there are people that we deeply, deeply love and in irritation or in times of stress, we might say things that make that stress even worse. And that's what I think was happening here. It made it even worse for her. So the deep, deep pain of, of, of Hannah. And you kind of see a little bit of the self-centeredness of Elkanah. But one particular year, one particular year, there was an encounter at the temple. And let's go on to verse 9 and up to verse 18. And it says, after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. He, she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. 
And she vowed a vow and says, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she was uh, continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. I want to, don't forget that. Her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long are you going to go on being drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she, and she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away and ate and her face was no longer sad. A couple things I want to point out here. The setting, Shiloh, interesting place. Shiloh was an important place in in the history of Israel. It was at Shiloh that Joshua brought together all the tribes of Israel. After the conquest of the land, when they were one, they were were a, a unity. He brought them all together at Shiloh. And there they erected the the tabernacle the tent of meeting and there the ark of the covenant was the presence of God was there amongst amongst the unity of God's people and it says it it says in chapter 18 of Joshua it says and all the land all the earth lay subdued before them (laughs) subdued a hint of uh, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Same word. So all the land was subdued before them. It was, it was a sign of the, of the unity of God's people, of the presence of God amongst his people, and of the fulfillment of God's promises to his people. But what had happened to Shiloh? Corruption. Corruption. In in the first passage, it mentions Hophni and Phinehas, uh, the sons of Eli. These were a pair of guys, you know, connected to Eli the priest, sons of the big shot, you know, at the, you know, in the temple, and and they were the ones that would would skim the money from the collection plate, and maybe and maybe. Uh, 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 take money from the the, uh, the church building plan and use that money to install a swimming pool and a hot tub in their house. It's essentially what they did. 
They stole from the offerings. They stole from the offerings. Oh, and then to make matters worse, they slept with the church secretary, had sex with her. Does that not resonate with you? It resonates with me when, when we see that this sort of corruption, this sort of thing takes place far too often. Just in the last couple of years, there have been people that I used to admire in the church, not this church, but in the church-wide, that were dipping into the till and sleeping on the side. And so this is, this is corruption, corruption in the, in the church, corruption of the offerings. And here's this faithful family coming up, the family of Elkanah, to offer their uh, offerings and, and their vows to, to the Lord. And now here, Eli, Eli, the man who should have been riding herd over Huffney and Phineas, he is sitting at the doorpost of the, well, it says of the temple. And you might question temple. Uh, you know, I thought the temple was in Jerusalem. Well, they didn't have Jerusalem at the time. The temple would later be built in Jerusalem. And, and scholars have looked at this and says, well, yeah, but there was no temple there in Shiloh. And so some have th- said, well, there was maybe a, a permanent uh, place, a, a permanent building where the Ark of the Covenant would have been uh, kept. Uh, and that could well be true, but the writer of this story... Uh, is using the history of it to make a point. He's talking about the temple. Yes, he's hinting at the temple. This is where the people of Israel are eventually going to go. They are going to eventually build that temple in Jerusalem. But here, there's kind of a shadow of it. A shadow of the temple. And Eli is sitting there. And there's also a bit of a double meaning here as well, because the word for temple here was often used, often used to talk about the king's palace. And the seat is almost always translated in the Old Testament, translated into English as throne. So here's Eli, the priest, and he's sitting on his throne in front of kind of a palace in a sense. He's the, he is the elite. He is the, he is the establishment. <laughs> and he jumps to a conclusion. He sees this woman and she's pouring out her heart and he, and he assumes that she is drunk. She, he, she, he, she's accused of being drunk and she's pouring out her heart to the Lord in prayer. And, and can you imagine that kind of a prayer so deep that the words won't even come out? Her lips were moving, but there was no sound. Eli seems almost like he's unconcerned. Unconcerned. What's, what is the priest supposed to be doing there? She's pouring out her her heart as an offering to the Lord, and here is the priest. And he seems unconcerned. She's not drunk. She's not worthless. 
She's deeply troubled in spirit. We saw that trouble in, in the first part of this, uh, this passage, but now it's even, it's even more affliction. She's pouring out her soul. There's great anxiety and great uh, vexation. And notice, and notice she, she, she speaks of herself uh, with humility. She speaks of herself as being a servant. She's just, she's just a humble humble servant. And if maybe a little window into Eli's character as well is, notice, uh, does Eli even ask her what her problem is? Doesn't even ask. Doesn't even ask. He just simply says, uh, uh, go in peace and the God of Israel grant you petition that you have made to him. But the Lord was faithful to, the, to those words, as we shall see. And then the woman, notice the writer just simply doesn't even say Hannah, but the woman, the woman went away and she ate and her face was no longer sad. And that word from Eli was not the last word was not the last word because the word would be even further established. We'll see uh, further on in the, in, the, in the passage. And I'm going to read from verse 19 through 28. Uh, they rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. And they went back to their house uh, at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she says, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. Oh, what... Notice how this passage begins with worship. The first trip that they made to Shiloh with this promise, and it ends with worship. And that's, that's, where, that's the heart of this. It, it, it's, 
It's the worship that is going on in the presence of, of the Lord, before the Lord. Can you imagine, though, that, that joy in, in her heart when, when God was faithful and, and, and they conceived and, and uh, Samuel um, was born? One other thing I forgot to mention, uh, she rose early in the morning uh, to worship. Uh, this is a signal as well from the writer here, I think, of the story. It's a new morning. They got up early. Something has happened. Something has happened. This is a new age in the life of Hannah and, and the family of Elkanah. But do you see as well that it is a new day for the people of God? Yeah, a new day for the people of God. It's a bright, shining morning. And they rose early and they worshipped because they were confident that God was going to be faithful to his promises. And weaning a child, uh, it takes some time. And in, in, in this uh, culture, in this society, uh, you could expect maybe three or four years before a child was, was weaned. So, so when, when this child was, was brought for the first time to the, uh, uh, to the temple or to, to the tabernacle uh, in Shiloh, he was probably about four or five years old. And considering, this is a little bit funny in a way, it's kind of humorous, uh, Eli didn't ask Hannah her name, he didn't ask what her trouble was, and, and Hannah went off uh, and didn't appear again in Shiloh for maybe four or five more years. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden she shows up to, <laughs> she shows up to the temple and says, here, here's this little boy, uh, and you get to raise him. It's, it's almost, it's kind of, what's this all about? And can you imagine Eli was a pretty old man at the time. Uh, can you imagine being 70, 80 years old and having somebody show up and say, oh, here's this little four-year-old boy, can you take care of him? You know. So I find that a little bit, uh, a little bit amusing in a certain sense. But at the same time, at the same time, here was Eli who had, had failed in raising Hophni and Phinehas. And suddenly in his, in his care is left this four or five-year-old boy. But it was the Lord that was going to be at work in this young man's life. And I call him young man because... The interesting thing here is, is he's a four or five year old. In fact, when he was born, it refers to him as being a young fellow. Word that's used is normally used for a teenage boy or maybe, maybe a young adult, a na'ar. And, and he, was, he was a baby, and, and the author refers to him. And then here he is, a four or five year old lad young guy. And it sort of suggests, I think, that there is a special, there is a special place for this young man. He was going to be a leader. He was something special. 
And so, may the Lord fulfill what your mouth has uttered, is what uh, uh, Elkanah says to, to, uh, to Hannah. And she was faithful to that vow. Yes, she lent this young man, this young fellow who was only four or five years old at the time, she lent him then to the Lord. You, you might begin to say then, how do we respond to, to this story? How do we respond to this? It's an interesting story. There's a lot of interesting details, but that happened more than 3,000 years ago. How does this really really relate to us. And I think in, in relating it, uh, we, need to, we need to enter back into the story ourselves. And one of the beautiful ways that scripture gives us to enter into a story like this is through poetry. And I'm going to read from the beginning of chapter 2 of First Samuel. It's called Hannah's Song. And it's a song of worship and praise. It's rich in imagery. It's rich in biblical significance. And it would be worthy of a further study. It could be the subject of a, a, a lengthy sermon in and of itself. We don't have time for that. But I want you to listen to it and see how it is that Hannah responds now in words, in in. in uh, uh, in, in, in praise. It says, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our Lord. Talk no more so proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is God of knowledge. And by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread. But those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them... He has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed, his Messiah, his Mashiach. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. Now, this is, this is a, 
a, a prayer of thanksgiving. It's a prayer of praise. And yes, it mentions it mentions the you know the barrenness. The barren has borne seven, but she has many children. Is forlorn. But what is she really, really talking about here? She's really talking about a coming king, isn't she? And can you, can you begin to see what the author of this story is doing? It, it begins with the exalted heart, the exalted horn. Uh, she rebukes her enemies. She rebukes the, the elite that are oppressing people. She rejoices in her salvation. She extols the Lord who is mighty, the Lord who is victorious, the Lord who judges, the Lord who exalts his Messiah, his Mashiach, his anointed one. I, I believe what the author is trying to do here is he's trying to say that as a woman longs to have a child, a son, as she, as she has that deep, deep longing for it, uh, so did the people of Israel long for a king, long for a righteous king, a king that would come into this horrible uh, situation where there was no king, where there was nothing but turmoil and strife, and bring righteousness and justice. The author is saying that as that woman, as that woman desired so strongly for a, a son, so the people of Israel desired a king. It goes, it goes further though. It goes further. It's not just, it's not just the King David. Look on beyond the, the horizon. David, David was a man after God's own heart, but David was not a perfect man. He was not a perfect king. This, this psalm, this song of Hannah, looks to the coming kingship in Israel, yes, but it looks, it looks even further to the, to the coming kingship of the son of David that will never, never end. Second Samuel chapter 7, you can read about that from the same, from the same author. So what about our deepest longings as individuals and as, as the people of God? Do we not long for righteousness? Is there not a longing for justice? I mean, real justice. A longing for salvation? Yeah. A longing for the Messiah? Yeah. We know, we know of course, that Jesus is that Messiah. He is the Mashiach, uh, the anointed one, the Christ. And he came and he died for our sins. 
And he rose again from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. We, we confessed that uh, earlier in the service, did we not? He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. And he is coming to judge the living and the dead, is he not? I, is there not a longing in your heart? I, I, in, in my heart, I so long to see uh, real justice real peace. I, I, I long to see that. And, and when, I, when I read the anguish of Hannah's heart, I sense in a certain way the anguish that, that we as the people of God ought to have toward what is going on around us. And while I know there, there are things that we cannot, we cannot control, but our prayers should be as, as Hannah's were pouring out our heart to God, asking Him, asking Him to to uh, to to bring down the the unjust, to to raise up those who are oppressed, to to bring real and true justice uh, to the to the world. I, I've talked about being grafted into the story. Does does the story here begin to? Uh, resonate in your heart? I hope it does. I hope this story begins to resonate. And for those who may not have ever really adopted this story, been grafted into this story, this is the time. You see the injustice. You see the, what, the, what the world is, is like. And if, if we are all honest, we see that the injustice and the, and the unrighteousness sometimes in our own hearts. And we long, we long to worship God for all time in, in eternity. That, I think, is the deepest longing of our hearts. Who are we as people? What are we doing here? What makes us tick? What is the deepest longing of our heart? Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. Amen. Receive now the blessing from the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance to you and give you peace. Shalom.